Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all here. Um, I was invited several weeks ago to uh, preach this morning, and, and I was honored to have that invitation. And um, one of the big challenges was, what was I going to preach on? And um, I didn't have an assigned text. And you know what? This, this book has a lot of material. <laughs> so I'm like, where do I begin? Where would I go uh, to uh, find a message? And uh, finally, the, the, Anglican, the old Anglican in me went back to the ancient church calendar. And um, August 6th on the, church, the old church calendar is the Feast of the Transfiguration. And so millions and maybe more than a billion Christians around the world are observing this as a feast day, um, marking that great event up on the mountain. So I'm going to talk about that today. And what does that event mean um, in, in the life of Jesus, in the life of the disciples, and how does that impact us? And where do we fit in with that? So I'm going to ask you to join me in reading um, the passage. It's Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And I believe, is it going to be on the screen? or? Oh, okay, very good. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for giving us the scriptures that we might learn about you, learn about your kingdom, and learn about truth and wisdom. I ask, Lord, that you bless us this morning as we 
delve into your word and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. There's something about mountains and mountaintops. Do you all like mountains? I love mountains. I grew up in Corpus Christi, and there are no mountains anywhere near there. <laughs> beautiful bays, beautiful water fronts and all, but you leave Corpus and, and it's just flat land for a huge distance. And um, I'll never forget when, my, when I was probably in my maybe 10 or 11, my parents took us to Colorado. Um, we went on a road trip and we got in my dad's Suburban and we, we, we drove to Colorado and we drove across Texas, which is a long haul, as you would know. And we'd get into New Mexico and see, see some different, different rugged land. But I'll never forget the first time I saw the mountains come into view as we're heading north up the interstate. You just see this amazing, in the hazy distance, you see these peaks start to show. And at first they might look like clouds. They might just be, what is that, maybe just clouds off. But then as you drive a little further, you see them and they start to become more defined. And you see these beautiful, rocky, just magnificent um, things that are just getting bigger and bigger as you ride up that way. And I'll just never forget that experience and that wonder of just seeing that. Uh, this boy from Corpus Christi that just thought all land was flat and there was water by it. And, um, and going into the mountains was amazing. And fortunately, my parents loved to go to Colorado. So we went several times in my childhood and, and I followed when I entered young adulthood. I remember went, going on a trip and uh, some friends and I, we went up to Estes Park, Colorado, when we rode up one of those windy roads and we got up to uh, one of the peaks that you could actually drive to. And, um, you know, it's really amazing to think that's way over a mile above our location, <laughs> you know, I mean, in terms of height. But it's so high that, you know, you'd be driving up and you'd see the clouds and you'd actually see the clouds below the peaks, which is really something. But what was really amazing was we got up to the top of the mountain and we parked and we walked around and looking at this amazing view and these clouds kind of rolled in. And these clouds rolled in very low. Um, they were above us, but I would swear they were no higher than the ceiling here. I mean, it was almost like you could get a tall ladder, climb up and put your hand in the cloud. It was really amazing. And the cloud kind of got a little lower and a little lower, never covered us completely, but we just had that. And, um, you know, just having this kind of a mountaintop experience, literally, with this. But then all of a sudden, there's a crack of thunder. <laughs> oh, it was loud. It scared us to death. And we, we ran to our cars, you know, like, run. I mean, we, we got into our car. We were, we were done. But uh, I, when, I, when I remember that experience and, and read this passage, it kind of reminds me when the cloud descends and all you know, the magnificence and, and maybe the scariness of it even. There are numerous mountaintop experiences in the Bible. I mean, it almost makes sense that mountains would be places where these things would take place. And it is a thing in the Bible, obviously. Um, just went through and I was trying to look at some examples. Of course, Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And he encountered the glory of God up on that mountain. In fact, so much so that when he came down, his face shone, and people were amazed. He had to wear a veil, actually, 
uh, because of, of that. And it wasn't him shining himself. It was just kind of a reflection of the glory of God that he saw. Later, uh, in, well, earlier in the, in the book of Genesis, Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And um, that was a, a terribly difficult test for, for Abraham. And yet God um, mercifully provided a ram and, um, as a substitute for his son Isaac. But another mountaintop experience. Another great one is Elijah the prophet. Um, and he confronted hundreds of false prophets of Baal. And it's an amazing passage where the power of God is shown to be so much greater than these false prophets and these false gods. And in today's scriptures, we have this event called the Transfiguration. And Jesus appears in glory before Peter, James, and John. Try to imagine being Peter up on that mountain about 2,000 years ago, following Jesus up there. Um, the journey that Peter had taken with Jesus, I was trying to get an estimate. I, I never really kind of thought about how long had, had Peter been with Jesus up to this time. We're in the 17th chapter of Matthew. There's 28 chapters all in Matthew's gospel, so, you know, a little past the halfway point in the scripture there. And um, scholars were, that I saw were talking, it was about a year, a little over a year maybe, that, that the disciples had been with Jesus and they were called. It might be later, it's not a certain thing. Um, but they were with Jesus for a while and they saw so many amazing things. I mean, imagine being with Jesus from that point and walking along that path with Jesus, following him. And over that time, Jesus healed countless people. He walked on water and calmed storms at his command. Uh, last week, Sam gave a wonderful message, you know, talking about the calming of the storm. He fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. I mean, these are amazing, miraculous things that Jesus did. And... Imagine being the disciples and just seeing all of that. But then Jesus, six days before this event, he gets to this point where he asks the disciples, you know, what do people say about me? And some say, oh, some say you're the prophet Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Um, but Jesus then turned that question to the disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? And that's an interesting question, an interesting test. They've been with Jesus all this time. They've seen these amazing things. Well, Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was the right answer. And, and Jesus praised Peter for saying that, for acknowledging that, but also acknowledging the fact that it wasn't Peter himself who said it, but the Spirit of God through him, the Spirit of the Father. Then... Once that was established, Jesus began to tell them that things are going to get difficult. Things are going to get rough. It's going to be a time when he turns his face to Jerusalem. And he's going to go there. And he's going to, well, right here in Matthew 21, I'm just going to read this, this uh, what Jesus says himself. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, the risen, of, the Son of God. But then at the same time, at when Jesus tells him the hard stuff is coming, you know, Peter's like, no way, this can't happen. Not to you, never, far, you know, that's not allowable. And Jesus makes it very clear that this is part of his mission. This is part of why he came. In fact, it's the core reason he came to the world. Of all the things that Jesus came to do and accomplish, and he did much, the cross was the, the chief mission. John the Baptist knew Jesus' mission from the beginning. He pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus and only Jesus could be the sacrificial Lamb to atone for our sins. Jesus was without sin and without blemish. And he knew this and it was his time. It was time that his disciples understood that this is now becoming a reality. This is going to happen. So on this day, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain. Luke says Jesus begins to pray. Imagine being Peter, James, and John following Jesus up this mountain. It's not a huge, tall mountain. Um, I mean, we don't know the exact place, but the, tr the church tradition is that it's Mount Tabor, um, which is in northern Israel. It's uh, near the Sea of Galilee, about 18 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. Um, I guess a good comparison would be if we were on the edge of the water of the Sea of Galilee, you'd be a little, little beyond Sealy, you know, if you were going west. I mean, it's not that far from the sea. And they get up there. And Jesus is transfigured before them. His face becomes shining like the sun. Um, his clothes become dazzling white, as white as white can be. And then Moses and Elijah appear next to Jesus, before Jesus, or with Jesus. Imagine just being one of the disciples and seeing this. What would you do? What would you say? These two figures that appeared with Jesus were two great figures of the Old Testament. And we know the names. We know them. And according to Luke's gospel, Moses and Elijah, while they were there, spoke with Jesus about Jesus' coming departure. Um, the Greek word exodos. We get the word exodus from that, but it refers to Jesus' death that is coming. John Calvin 
I was reading some of his commentaries in preparation for this message, and um, it was interesting. I thought it was a beautiful thing that Calvin said about this moment. Um, Peter responds to this almost in a stupor. just doesn't know how to handle this situation and doesn't really know what to say, and I think all of us would be in that boat, wouldn't we? Trying to imagine what to do. And Calvin said this, he said, We need not wonder that Peter was so captivated by the loveliness of what he beheld. As to lose lose sight of every other person and rest satisfied with the mere enjoyment of it. As it is said in the psalm, Psalm 16, In thy presence is fullness of joy. And that must have been both a terrifying, joyful, and wondrous sight. All at the same time. And Peter, he kind of stumbles for things to say, and then it's like, well, let's, let's build some tabernacles, some tents, and we'll put these up for you and Moses and Elijah. It's, it's as if he's basically saying, let's capture the moment forever. Let's just let this, this is great. This is amazing. Let's just be up here with this glory forever and, and just not let it stop. But it was a fleeting moment. It was a glimpse, a foretaste of Christ's glory. And it was an amazing sight, and it had a lot of meaning to it. You know, the the church, interestingly enough, Mount Tabor, um, on that mountain today, because of the church tradition, um, centuries ago, in the ninth century, they started building churches on Mount Tabor. And there is a church of the transfiguration that's there. It's built by the Catholic and Orthodox churches. They kind of share this magnificent, huge building that's, that's on there today. And people will make journeys there, and, and uh, just like other places in the Holy Land. I mean, they build churches on sites that were considered holy and, and special. And, um, and, and this site was certainly no, no exception. And so I find it interesting that that centuries later the church did kind of attempted what Peter wanted to do, build the tents, build the structures. You know, now there is a permanent structure there. But, it's not mar- but, but that moment that was up there was fleeting, at least at that time. As Peter, as Peter was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped the mountaintop, and God spoke in the cloud, trying to imagine what God's voice would sound like, but he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. These words are repeated, the very words that that God spoke um, when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry. Those very words were spoken. Uh, God was reaffirming that this is my son. I love him. He is one to listen to. He is, he, he, and, and, and truly so. Peter was clearly impacted by this event. In fact, it's, I found it interesting. Um, in 2 Peter, in his second letter, he actually describes this event, not, not in detail, but he actually mentions this event. Um, Peter was writing um, to challenge false teachings and false prophecies and false uh, messages. And he was, he was pointing to the authenticity of the message that Peter was giving, the, the, the word of God. And Peter wrote this, and this is um, 
this is, this is what he, he wrote. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make this stuff up. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard there this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him, Jesus, on the holy mountain. And so Peter remembered that event and points to it. I can imagine that he, he held that, but it's amazing he had that event, but, but still stumbled quite a bit when things got tough. But hindsight's twenty twenty, and clearly he saw the, the meaning of it after. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for Jesus? What does this mean for the disciples? Well, as I said, Jesus is turning his face to Jerusalem. He's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was a preparation for him in part. It was a glimpse of his glory, a reminder that his mission was authentic. I mean, Jesus probably knew this, but, but he, you know, Jesus, he was fully God and fully human. And the human side of him might have needed encouragement. I mean, we see that in the garden before he was arrested. He prayed to God Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He was praying that maybe we can do something else besides what's going to happen. And of course he says, but your will be done, not mine. And Jesus, even though he was reluctant, and he was willing to go to the cross. And I think that that's a powerful thing. You know, Jesus was the perfect example of a human being. And a healthy human being would not want to go through what Jesus would endure. How many of you would want to, to uh, do that? <laughs> you know, I mean, if Jesus had gone, well, this is going to be fun, bring it on. That wouldn't have been a healthy reaction from a healthy human being, would it? We'd question the sanity of that person. And Jesus knew what was going to come. He knew that he was going to suffer physical, spiritual, emotional abuse beyond anything we can imagine or anything we could probably endure. And he was going to do it on our behalf. And so having Moses and Elijah, Moses represented the law, and, and of course he received the Ten Commandments. Elijah represented the prophets, at Laura, all the prophets. Um, Elijah was one of the greatest of the prophets. And they appear to Jesus, I think in a way to serve Jesus in that moment as a preparation for what's to come. Um, they, they discuss it on that mountain. And, um, you know, it's really interesting. Elijah, when he died, he didn't die. He was carried up into heaven on, by, on a chariot. And, um, and now he appears on this mountain with Jesus. And Moses, he did die, but he died right at the border um, before, he, before the people entered the promised land. He was not able to do so. But yet on this day, for the first time, Moses stood on the prom in the promised land next to Jesus. And if, you're gonna, if he was going to do so, what would be more appropriate than to be with the Son of God in that moment? This event's event for the disciples was a glimpse of Christ's glory. They too are going to be distressed. They too are going to 
encounter all kinds of doubt and worry and, and, and agony as they see what is happening to their Lord. And we see that, you know, Peter denied Jesus three times. The disciples scattered when he was arrested. Um, it, they, this was a, a, a traumatic event for them. And this, this glimpse that Peter, James, and John received was a reminder that despite what Jesus is going to endure, he will be glorified. There is a victory to be hoped for and, and promised. That this will happen. Things are going to work out fine. And this is kind of a glimpse of that glory up on the mountain that day. So what does that mean for us? As Christians in 21st century America. And I think, well... The fact is, I think you all will agree with me on this statement. Life is hard. Life is hard. We all experience challenges in our lives, don't we? We all have suffered pain. We all have dealt with all kinds of things. We live in a fallen world that is evil, filled with evil and corruption. Jesus when he went to the cross and he was raised, had victory over sin and death once and for all. But the war is still kind of battle going on. That, that was like the, the winning battle of the war. But right now we're kind of in the mop-up operations, if you will. Uh, there's still evil around. There's still a lot of things. But the, the victory has already been won. And the glory is still to come. Jesus will return in full glory. And it's going to be an amazing event. But life is hard. Many of us deal with cancer or other diseases. Many of us have financial challenges or trouble finding a good job or work, providing for our families. Many of us might have relationship difficulties with loved ones, and that can be very painful. Many of us have lost loved ones to disease or whatever, and we grieve and mourn at their loss, and that is painful. And the older somebody gets, the more they're going to see that life is hard. When we're young, we kind of think we're immortal, don't we? We take risks, we, we, we kind of just assume we're going to live forever, but then, as, then eventually, as I like to say, you know, when you get about the age of 50, the, the, uh, the check engine light starts to turn on. At least that's my case. And... Um, we have these challenges that grow more and more as we get older. But we do have these challenges. Life is hard. The church can be persecuted. Sam gave a great message last Sunday talking about how there's an increased likelihood that we're going to be persecuted as Christians and uh, that we, we need to be prepared for that possibility. He was talking about Andrew Brunson's book, talking about how the church may be in for some major trials um, through this. And... Um, and that's part of life being hard. You know, I like the fact that we speak the truth about the fact that life is hard. Um, you, could, you can find churches where everything's all rosy and, and great. You know, prosperity gospel. You know, you, you follow Jesus, you won't have a problem in your life. You will be wealthy, you will, you will be successful, all of this stuff. And you know what? Jesus made it clear that's not part of the deal. <laughs> you know, you will experience blessings in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of possibilities, but life is not going to be easy. 
life is going to have those challenges. And um, before Jesus took the disciples up on the mountain, he did say that we must take up our crosses and follow him. And that can be a difficult and painful journey. But the, re- the transfiguration was a glimpse of the preview of the glory to come. There is a victory. There is glory and joy and, and, and all the promises of God that lie ahead. Despite how much we suffer in this life, we will live a life where there is no suffering. There will only be joy. And in John's book of Revelation, we see, a, we see more of that glimpse of the glory that Jesus displayed up on the mountain. And I'm just going to read this. This is, this is uh, Revelation 7, 9 um, through 17. As I looked, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a shout, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white, white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones out of, coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they, are, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. It sounds like a good, good ending, doesn't it? it? Sounds like a good a good scene and it and the description of that gets a little better on verse 7 16 and 17 they shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore the the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat and i'll say right now as a texan that gives me hope for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the glory that awaits. This is the glory that we see glimpsed, a glimpse of on the Transfiguration Mountain, on Mount Tabor that day. So as we walk on our Christian journey, we follow Jesus. We're called to do that. It's a privilege to follow Jesus. We pick up our crosses and we follow him wherever he would lead us. We might suffer along the way. But a glory awaits, a never-ending glory, just like what Peter saw. Peter wanted that moment on the mountain to last forever. John gives us that moment, shows us that moment for eternity. And that is the promise and hope that we live in. We put our faith, we put our trust, we put our love in Christ Jesus. For he is truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he promises glory beyond anything we can possibly imagine. 
And that's why we gather here. That's why we break bread and we receive the sacrament. That's why we, we, we worship our Lord. He is a good God. And He has a plan for us and a victory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, whose Son Jesus Christ was wonderfully transfigured before chosen witnesses upon the holy mountain and spoke of the exodus He would accomplish at Jerusalem, Give us strength to hear his voice and bear our cross, that in the world to come we may see him as he is, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.